0: Let's get ready to scale. Larry, take the will and tell us what we need to know.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you. I absolutely appreciate the opportunity. Um, So, When we talk about three tax strategies for passive uh, real estate investors or passive investors in general, uh, the reason I I like this topic and why I was so excited when when you brought it up is because quite often, all you hear about are the active real estate strategies, how you can get massive tax deductions today, taking advantage of depreciation and all of that fun stuff. And while that is true, we can't forget that a large uh, uh, subset of our investors are, in fact, passive investors who may not be able to take immediate advantage of some of the passive losses that are generated until they watch this live webinar and ask more questions of their tax professionals. So we're going to jump right in and get started and talk through three of these strategies. Uh, But before I do so, I'll talk a little bit about myself, just kind of give you a 50,000 foot overview of who is this bald guy telling you about these three strategies. Uh, first, my name is Laird D. West III. We have a tax strategy and planning firm that is based right here in the city of Dallas. However, we work with clients across the entire United States. I have a background in finance and accounting. I have my enrolled agent designation, which comes directly from the IRS. And I've been in practice for nine plus years, coming up on a decade uh, in this space. Uh, we specialize at our practice specifically in real estate and business taxation, which of course is very fitting for the conversation and the uh, discussion that we're gonna have today. So what to expect today? a couple of things. We're going to talk about getting started. And when I say getting started, we really want to set the foundation for, hey, what is this whole idea around taxation? I have this saying, essentially how you make your money determines how that money is taxed, how it's taxed, then gives you insight on some of the strategies that you can put in place to better tax plan and create tax efficient uh, strategies. And so we're uh, we're going to set the foundation there. Then we're going to get into why everyone is here. We're going to talk through those three strategies that I think every passive investor needs to know about and we'll give you uh, some detail around how you can use them and again how to take this conversation back to your tax professional to make sure that they actually apply to your situation. So before we get started, let me just throw the disclaimer out there because it will make the attorneys happy. Nothing we talk about is specific tax advice for any one individual. We are just a bunch of friends on this uh, webinar call today learning about tax planning and tax strategies. So if you hear something you like, absolutely have the conversation with your tax professional on if this actually fits into your world and how it fits into your world. Uh, So with that, let's jump in and get started. All right. So um, how you make your money informs how the money is taxed. Again, that's where we started. So I want to talk to you about a few different levels of taxation that you should understand uh, just as a taxpaying citizen, but also as a passive investor. The first is what we call ordinary income tax. This covers the gamut, and it it hits just about every level of money that you make. We're talking about your W-2 earnings, the earnings from your your business, the earnings that you get from your interest income, your rental income, all of those things hit what's called your ordinary tax bracket. That's the 800-pound gorilla. When we hear our Uh, When we hear our politicians talking about lowering taxes or or raising taxes, this is typically what they're referring to as the ordinary tax rate. Right now, as it stands, that's zero to 37%. The next one is what we call passive uh, income, and that's when you don't have to be subject to self-employment tax. Self-employment tax is just another way of saying uh, Social Security and Medicare tax. And so passive income, for many of us on this call today, we automatically think, Real estate, real estate is a form of passive income. There's also interest income as well that fits into that category. Uh, And then the the next one that I wanna describe to you is what's called capital gains tax. So capital gains is with respect to owning an asset and selling it. So when we hear about uh, real estate assets being sold, a lot of us immediately think that it's gonna hit our ordinary income bracket, but depending on how long you hold that asset, it'll likely be subject to capital gains. And many of us in the industry refer to this as favorable taxation. So as you can see, I've outlined here on the screen, that's 0%, 15 or 20%. Now, how do you know which bracket you fall into? Well, it depends on what your overall income is. If you hit certain thresholds, you may pay 0% on capital gains tax, you may pay 15%, or you may pay 20%. So overall, just as investors in general, we're typically going to fall into one of these buckets in terms of how we generate and or make our money. Of course, how we make that money determines how it's taxed. How it's taxed then tells us the entity election that we need to best handle that taxation. So I've outlined a couple of them below. Now, today's webinar is beyond the scope and going into specific details around the uh, the entities, but I wanna talk about those elections just for a moment. We all hear about LLCs, limited liability companies. The thing I wanna point out there from a taxation perspective, a single member LLC from taxation, not legal, but from taxation perspective specifically, actually does not necessarily change your your tax implications. It is treated the same as a sole proprietorship, right? That means the income and or expenses flow directly through to you as the owner, and depending on the source of that income and how you made that income, its taxation will be treated accordingly. The next, some of us have heard of uh, the S corporation election. The reason I have that here is because a lot of people on this webinar are real estate investors. And I like to make a point when we look at, buy and hold real estate, actually owning the asset and holding onto the property, we typically don't advise that it's held under an S corporation. It destroys some tax advantages and it's very hard to move that property in and out of the uh, entity accordingly. And so if you are invested in real estate, buy and hold, holding onto the asset, make sure you talk with your tax professional and your attorney about your specific structure. And if you are purchasing real estate under an S corporation, again, specifically buy and hold here, you may want to rethink that or have a deeper conversation with your people to make sure you're structured appropriately. And so uh, partnership and C corporations are additional tax elections uh, that one could have. And again, some these all have their place with respect to how you're um, ultimately structured and what your goals are. And so I wanted to give you that little bit of a, a 50,000 foot view of setting the stage for understanding taxation. Now, let's jump into why we're all here. Let's get into our first strategy when we talk about passive uh, investing. Uh, when The the first thing that we typically come to, especially as we're um, higher income earners, when we receive that first K-1 from our syndication or our first K-1 from a passive deal that we invested in, and it's a large, as some people call negative K-1, we then take that to our CPAs, they prepare our tax return, and we say, wait, what happened? Did I not get a tax deduction? That thing says negative $100,000. What happened to my taxes here? It's because you've hit what's called the passive loss limitation. Unless you do what's called materially participate in a business, you are considered a passive investor. And as such, the losses that are generated, if we're talking real estate specifically, are considered passive. And so passive losses can only offset other passive income. If we're high income earners, physicians fit this bill perfectly, high W-2 earners or high business income earners, yet they're having passive losses from real estate, they typically end up in that conundrum that I just talked about. Because you have the passive loss limitation, what I've outlined are three ways um, uh, when, to use those passive losses right here today, where you don't have to use them as what are called suspended losses. The first is what's called is, is we look at cash flow over appreciation. And what I mean by that is if we're already investing in a passive real estate deal, that being a syndication, and it's producing large passive losses for us, part of the strategy here could be to go and acquire other real estate that you own directly that has more of a focus on a higher cash flow volume and may have a lower basis. What does that mean? It's buying property that doesn't necessarily cost as much, that cash flows really well, and that those typically don't produce passive losses. They produce passive income. But when you marry those two together, you've got positive cash flow from your real estate holdings that you have. And the basis is low, so you've got positive income coming from over there, but then you've got negative losses that are coming from your syndication. Well, those two things come together, and what what you've essentially done is made more money, but not necessarily increased your tax bill. Because remember, passive losses offset passive income. Your real estate that you generated that is cash flow focused is being offset by the other real estate that you uh, generated with the passive losses, which has more of the appreciation play over time. The next thing to consider is exiting and selling. You may have some positions or you may have some properties rather that you're holding onto that it could be the perfect time to sell. Now, of course you have to assess the market and we have all kinds of uh, opinions about the market we're in now and where we're headed. That's not what what we're dialing in on here. We're talking more about the concept. If you're in a position where you have massive passive losses and you have property that has appreciated that you could possibly sell, but you don't want to pay the capital gains tax, well, guess what? Those passive losses that have been generated from your real estate can help offset the capital gain from selling a property that you hold that is appreciated over time. Again, putting you in a situation where you're flush with a little bit more liquidity, you've not increased your tax bill as much, and you've used those passive losses from your investment to offset the capital gain from the property that you're holding. The next one is invest in a business. This goes right back up to point number one. This is where passive losses offset passive income. If you are a part of a business, perhaps maybe it's a family business that someone else in your family owns and operates primarily, but you're a silent partner, you're an investor, you don't materially participate, you don't make managerial decisions. You're a limited partner there, but it's a business that cash flows. Similar to our first example, where you have the real estate income that cash flows, this could be a business that cash flows accordingly. And then you've got massive passive losses from your real estate investment, your syndication or your fund that can offset the cash flow, the positive cash flow that you're getting from the other business that you invest in. So when we bring this strategy full circle, the point here is there are ways to use your passive losses today to where they don't have to be suspended and carry forward into the future. You can, again, focus on cash flowing properties that have a low basis, meaning a low purchase price, a low renovation price, but they cash flow exceptionally well and use your losses to offset there. You could sell a property and use your passive losses to offset the capital gain. Or you can be a passive investor in another business in which you don't materially participate and, again, Use your passive real estate losses to offset the income from, uh, from that business. So that's the, the point of strategy number one. Uh, now, let's jump over into strategy number two, real estate professional status. Now, this is a hot button issue because it gets a lot of traction online. There are tons of Instagram videos, TikTok videos, LinkedIn videos that talk about being a real estate professional. And we spend a lot of time in our field uh, making corrections here. And so I wanna spend some time talking about how do you properly qualify as a real estate professional? And then also, what does it take to use the real estate professional status specifically to uh, when you're a passive investor? So the the first thing to understand is, you need to have. You need to spend at least 750 hours in a real property trader business. That's doing something in the real estate space specifically. That could be real estate sales. That could be real estate investing. That could be uh, property uh, management. That could be uh, development. That could be a multitude of areas. As long as the the core focus is real property trader business, you need 750 hours in that space. The next thing you need is to spend more than half your time, more than 50% of your time in this real property trader business that you materially participate in. So for those of us who have um, primary businesses that we own and operate that have W-2s, we kind of run into this conflict where we are not necessarily able to qualify because more than 50% of our time is spent over there in that business and not necessarily in the real estate business. But if you are able to hit marker number one and marker number two, there's a third element that's often forgotten um, or often misused and that is you must materially participate in your rental portfolio. Okay? So that means you actually have to own your own rental portfolio in order to successfully deploy this real estate professional status. Now, when you do this on the active real estate side, which is what uh, a lot of folks do, uh, then you're able to use potentially, excuse me, use those losses to offset your other active income. But when you're a limited partner, it's a bit harder for you to do what's called materially participate. There's a whole seven part test that the IRS has in terms of material participation. Um, when you're a limited partner, i.e. a passive investor, there are only three of those tests that you can use in order to possibly use those losses to offset uh, your other income. Um, that, the first test is spending at least 500 hours uh, materially participating in the business. The second one and this is number five on the uh, on the seven part list, is participating during any of the five preceding taxable years. And then of course, the last one is, um, uh, it has to be a personal service activity, excuse me, in at least three of the last five years. And so you have to hit those markers. That's test number one, five, or six. So if you want to use real estate professional status as a passive investor and you're a limited partner inside of your funds and syndications, you want to make sure you hit all of these markers. And this is why it's important to work with your tax professional specifically, because there are a lot of assumptions around what actually constitutes the activities to meet this standard. And quite a few of them are absolutely wrong. Uh, And this is not one that you want to mess up. Now, if you are able to get this and you are able to perfect it, this opens the door to those large losses that were inherently considered passive to possibly flow through and offset uh, your other active income. And again, if nothing else, it still offsets your other passive income. But real estate professional status can be a very powerful tool for you to use as a passive investor specifically. Um, One more thing to note, the IRS does require that you materially participate in each of your real estate holdings. That means each individual holding needs its own level. Well, there is, a, uh, there is a unique rule or unique provision where you can do what's called a grouping election. Now, again, this is a fairly complex strategy that is very unique to, uh, to individuals. So you wanna talk to your CPA to see if this actually fits into what you're doing, but you could possibly group your, uh, your portfolio together and treat it as one and materially participate in one area. And then that would be treated as having participated across the entire portfolio. That was a lot I know. So let's jump into strategy number three, deductible business expenses. Here's the deal. When you invest in real estate, you have inadvertently created a business. Okay. And a business has regular operational expenses. I want to talk before I jump into the things you see on the screen, I want to talk about the five things uh, that we tell investors all the time or business owners all the time that constitute a reasonable tax deduction. Number one, it has to have business purpose. That means the deduction that we're taking has to be related to the business in some aspect. You cannot deduct personal uh, expenses. Number two is it has to be uh, ordinary. That means when we look at this type of business, this real estate investing business that you have, other businesses ordinarily incur these same types of expenses. Number three, it has to be necessary, meaning you have to incur the expense in order for you to generate income and turn a profit. Number four, and perhaps the most important of all of these, is it has to be documented. Document, document, document. That is the name of the game for tax planning and tax deductions going forward. If you can't document and substantiate the deduction that you're taking, well, it likely can be and will be denied in the event that you're facing an audit. So just to recap those top four, that's business purpose. That's ordinary. That's necessary in document. And the last one is a bit more subjective, but very important to understand. It has to be reasonable. The deduction that we're taking has to be reasonable in scope uh, based on the size of the business, the business activity, and the industry that you're operating in. So you want to make sure your deductions hit those five markers. But if you're running a real estate investment company, passive or otherwise, there are other deductions that you can take um, um, to, uh, inside of your business. I've listed a couple of, of the obvious ones at the top here, advertising, cleaning expense, in, uh, interest expense, insurance, uh, repairs, and so on. Those are things that are obvious uh, and, and point to the business. But the next few are some opportunities that not many of us are aware of, and we could be leaving a little bit of money on the table by not taking advantage of this. Mileage deduction is a very powerful one. Right now, the mileage deduction adjusted for inflation, 65 and a half cents per mile. Now we live in Dallas, Fort Worth. It is almost nothing to drive 10,000 miles a year, let alone 10,000 business miles. But let's just assume for a second that we were driving 10,000 business miles per year. That's a $6,500 deduction that's just sitting there waiting on us. Uh, so that, get, that tells you the power of, uh, of mileage. And here's what I like about these these deductions right here aren't necessarily about spending new money. This is money that we're already spending, but it meets our five standards and it constitutes reasonable business and tax deductions. So mileage is certainly one you want to consider. Travel is another one. As the owner of a real estate investment company, you're probably going to uh, different events or indoor training or seminars that are relevant to real estate uh, investing that'll help you grow your business. Now, again, it has to be business purpose, ordinary, necessary, and all those other things that we talked about. But if you just so happen to be traveling to these places, there is a possibility that there is a deduction waiting for you for your travel, uh, your lodging, uh, and your potentially your meals while you're there uh, at that conference or, or what have you. Uh, phone expense. Not a lot of people have landlines anymore. In fact, it's becoming more rare and rare. A lot of us communicate by way of our cell phones here. And so if our cell phones have business use and business application, is there a possibility for us to uh, use that as a reasonable business deduction? Absolutely. It doesn't meet the standard. Is, does it have business purpose I'm coordinating business there? Is it ordinary? People ordinarily use their phone. Is it necessary? I probably have to take some calls to close some deals, right? And you can see how we work our way down that list. And then we want to document it, of course, having a receipt for the bills that we're, uh, that we're paying relevant to our use of, of that cell phone. And of course, it has to be reasonable within scope. Home office is another one that we like. The home office deduction, when you, can, when you paired with the mileage deduction, could be really powerful. If the primary place of business is your uh, is your home and you use that office exclusively for business purposes, there is the possibility you can write off portions of your household uh, bills based on that home office use. We look at things like a portion of mortgage interest, property tax, utilities, water, sewer, trash, maintenance uh, of the like. And so this is another area where you want to get with your tax professional to see if it applies to you. And again, the point that we're making here is we're using expenses that we ordinarily incur in our everyday life. So, this isn't new cash flow going out the door, but now they have reasonable business purpose. Um, and so, understanding business deductions as a part of your strategy could be really powerful. Now, this is a, a real estate investing business it has passive activity, it's likely treated as passive. So those first two strategies are gonna be important, but it's certainly a good way to create tax tax deductions and help lower your tax burden. Um, Oh, the last one, I can't forget about this one, paying your child. Now this is a hot button issue because a lot of us in the tax space are like, hold on, pump the brakes because social media is running wild with this pay your child strategy. I wanna talk a little bit about it and and, uh, share with you uh, exactly how it works. Now you have to have a legitimate business. Right. And you have to be transacting legitimate business. Real estate investing could be uh, that space. Now, if your child has a legitimate role inside of your company, that means they have an actual job description. They're actually on salary and on payroll, just like any other employee would be. And you're paying them something that's commiserate with their skill set. And again, it hits those uh, five markers that we talked about, then you could possibly have an opportunity to create tax deductions inside of your real estate investing business that allow you to pay your child for the services that they provide. And they're likely in a lower tax bracket than you. And so you could see how, um, that shifting of income from perhaps the 25, 30, 37% bracket down to effectively zero, maybe even 10% could be a real value add and a saver there. And although your real estate investing business generates passive losses when you pay your child that's active income to them more specifically that's earned income to them that opens up the door for them to possibly invest in um, retirement strategies the one i have on the screen here is a roth and so if your child is earning earned income by way of a legitimate job through your business they then can possibly use that money to invest in a ira more specifically a roth ira they're already getting tax efficient money They're uh, by way of their tax bracket being super low, and then they can use that to invest in a tax vehicle that grows tax efficient, grows tax free over time, and comes out tax free when they hit retirement age. Could be a very powerful wealth building strategy. So to bring strategy number three full circle, this is all about making sure we take full advantage of reasonable business deductions for the real estate investment company or just the investment company that we're running in general. Those are our three points there in terms of strategies for passive investors.
0: Larry, thank you so much. That's extremely helpful information. Uh, We do have some questions that I'd like to make sure we uh, make some time for. Uh, First of all, John actually sent us a question in advance, and he has asked, Is it an advantage or disadvantage to use a self-directed IRA when investing in passive investments?
1: Oh, John, the the first part of this answer you're not going to like, it's the one that every CPA accountant and attorney gives. It depends, right? <laughs> it certainly depends on your unique situation. But let me tell you a little bit about how this works. When you use a self-directed IRA to invest in passive investments, uh, what you're doing is taking uh, control over where your retirement dollars grow, go and uh, and growing that chassis um, based on, on your... Um, your, your business acumen and your investment acumen. By default, a lot of these things go into the market, but on the self-directed route, you can use it to invest in real estate. And so it does allow your retirement chassis to grow tax-free. All of those proceeds come right back into the IRA, traditional or Roth. It comes right back into the IRA. So again, you're kind of growing uh, that pot over time. Now, the disadvantage and the one that typically comes to mind for most people is Whoa! When this thing sells, I'm gonna have to pay with. I'm gonna have to pay UBIT. I'm gonna have to deal with UBIT. 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 That's UBIT. Unrelated Business Income Tax. Whenever you have an IRA that invests in a um, uh, a passive deal that has leverage or debt attached to it, whenever taxable income arises, there is the possibility that that IRA will be subject to bit which is unrelated business income tax which means that IRA may have to pay tax on the uh, on its portion of income. we know in real estate typically that comes when the exit happens because there's capital gains uh, tax implications there. Uh, here's the fun thing about uh, the IRAs the same way that you've gotten historic, historically gotten uh, K1s over the years that have, Passive losses. Your IRA has gotten those passive losses as well, and so if you find yourself having to file what's called a 990T uh, for the UBIT tax because your IRA has taxable income, you could potentially use those suspended losses to offset that um, to offset that income uh, that has come. And so it's it's very similar to if you were a regular investor investing outside of the. IRA. So you don't necessarily lose those benefits either. And the thing we like is a lot of times because of how we're conditioned to save, we often have a lot of money tied inside of our retirement accounts, self-directed IRAs, 401ks, uh, or the like. And so it's a great vehicle for us to start investing in real estate without having to be hit with penalties. We just have to plan accordingly to make sure we don't uh, subject ourselves to UBIT tax or at least try to limit our UBIT tax exposure.
0: Awesome. I was going to bring up exactly that, Larry, as I knew I knew UBIT would be the next question people would absolutely touch on, so I'm glad you did. Now our next question is from Kyle. Kyle says, "How would passive investors prepare for tax implications of the sale of a multifamily from a multifamily property assuming that capital gains the equity multiple is distributed? How do we avoid mm-hmm. getting dinged by Uncle Sam?"
1: Great, great question here. Now, this is where those passive losses that you weren't able to use historically could come back and benefit you. And so let's just say you didn't take advantage of any of the three strategies that we talked about today as a passive investor. Typically, the losses that you've uh, accumulated over the years that you weren't able to use, they're what are called suspended losses. And so they're locked away until you can use them at some point in the future. When the property sells that's a perfect time to unlock those losses. And so if you've amassed a, uh, a treasure trove of negative K-1s, I'm going to use that terminology, over the prior years, and then a deal sells and there's cap- the capital gains are distributed, well, now you can unlock those losses that you couldn't use one, three, five years ago throughout the whole period, and that becomes an avenue for you to offset the capital gains uh, that you're going to receive from the property uh, that just sold. The other thing to keep in mind is, The tax system rewards investors. So that is code for keep the dollars flowing, keep the dollars invested. The moment you take the money and run, so let's just say the the gains are distributed and you do nothing else. The moment you take the money and run, there are going to be tax implications there. But there's always going to be an opportunity to do some tax planning if you consider reinvesting. So that could be, just as an example, going and finding another deal, having a cost segregation study run on that deal, massive deductions that will flow through to you and then you rinse and repeat the same strategy all over again. Uh, So the point there is that you're not stuck with the capital gains tax, (coughs) sorry about that. The point there is you're not stuck with the capital gains tax, passive um, losses from those K-1s or just reinvesting those proceeds in another deal could be avenues that you explore.
0: Excellent, thank you, very good advice. Um, Now we have another question for you, Larry, from Janelle. She is asking, let me expand this message here. If you purchase a business but don't manage it, i.e. you have a manager and a team in place to run it uh, with you as the owner of the business, does this allow you to use your real estate uh, LP passive losses to offset the income from this business?
1: Great question. So I, I have to go back to the initial answer that no one likes. It depends. And so when you say you, you purchase it, but you have a manager that's running it and, and different things like that, there are there are different levels that we have to understand the scope of this thing to really get a feel for what your participation, your material participation specifically is inside of this business to better determine if it's truly uh, passive the fact that you're the only owner of record could create some uh, some issues and some implications there so it's not a sure thing and that's why you want to sit with the tax professional and or the attorney to make sure we outline that thing appropriately for you to possibly use those paths to position you as passive in the business and use some passive losses to offset that active income um, but there it, it's it is a bit of an uphill battle there so I don't want to make the assumption that hey I just go buy this thing and insert a manager and I'm completely out of the uh, out of the ring here. Uh, there are other uh, facts and circumstances that we'd have to address.
0: All right, excellent. Thank you, Larry. Um, now, that seems to conclude the majority of the questions that have come in thus far. If any of you have any additional questions, please feel free to submit them in, under the Q&A tab in the events section. Um, Also, I think one of the things that I am a little bit curious about, and I'm sure some other investors are as well, is just a reminder that we are now beginning to phase out, unfortunately, bonus depreciation. Uh, Do you have any advice that you would give investors um, in how best to kind of build a strategy around anticipating the fact that this depreciation is going to be phased out over the next several years?
1: Yeah, absolutely, uh, right. And so th- this is this is a, again a, a huge deal. This year we've dropped twenty percent, and so eighty percent of bonus depreciation. Uh, next year is going to go down to sixty, uh, forty, and and ultimately down to to twenty. And here here here's the big thing to understand: it's still a pretty good deal, right? We we haven't always had one hundred percent bonus depreciation. Uh, there there were levels and exclusions uh, in prior years, and so the from from twenty. 18 on up until now, we've had a a pretty solid run, but we're still in a a really good position. And so you don't let the tax tail wag the dog. If it's a good investment, it's still a good investment and you still want to consider it uh, with whatever criteria you use and go in. And then you can do the tax planning on the back end with uh, with your tax professional. And so I think that's the biggest thing is don't look at it purely as a tax play, because that's when you don't get the most favorable outcomes that you're looking for. You wanna look at it for its investment, um, evaluate the investment on its own merits, excuse me, and then let the tax implications come in afterwards. Uh, But the other side of that is, uh, you still, again, are in a good position, 80% is still better than zero, so um, continue to roll.
0: Excellent, and I've heard you say it before, and, and I'll repeat it again, do not let the tax tail wag the dog. I love that, very interesting. All right. Well, Larry, thank you so much. Uh, do you want to just share with uh, our participants today uh, how they can contact you if they have any further questions?
1: Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. My email address is right there on the screen. Uh, so you can reach out to me, but you also see our company website. So if you visit pb-strategies.com, there's a huge blue button on the top right hand side that says become a client. You, you click that button and schedule a discovery call and our team will sit down and chat with you and see if it makes sense for us to work together. Awesome.
0: Very good. Well, for those of you that uh, joined us today, thank you so much. We will be doing these webinars every month moving forward. I am excited to announce that next month we will have the chief global economist from CBRE joining us, uh, which should be extremely interesting, especially given the uh, dynamics and the volatility of some of the things that we've seen in the market lately. Uh, So make sure to join us next month. Uh, Larry, thank you again for uh, coming on the show. We definitely appreciate it. And uh, we will see you all again next month. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.